For member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Caitlin Kim, here with my colleagues Andrew Kenney and Benta Berkland. Hello. Hey, happy to be here. Yay! We all survived Election Day, Election Week. Election We're Fortnite. still here. <laughs> We are recording this on the morning of Thursday, November 4th, and maybe it's because I'm tired, but the only thing I feel that I know for certain is that things will have changed by the time you listen. Yep, that's absolutely true. We don't know a lot about the national, but I think we know a lot about the state. Yeah, and I think there's so much to unpack about what passed, what didn't, mm-hmm. power of control here, what it means for state policies next year, the future of the, the state politically. Yeah, if we start digging into these voting results and numbers, we we do get a new picture of Colorado politics right now. Oh, a new picture of Colorado politics. I'm sure everyone wants to hear about that. <laughs> I think so, yes. <laughs> right. Well, if you're on this podcast, I can't help you. <laughs> all right, so first off, the race we were all watching, the U.S. Senate race. This is the one race that went as the polls and the pundits expected. It was nationally. The, exactly. As the U.S. Senate race between Republican Cory Gardner, Democrat John Hickenlooper. Hickenlooper is now Mr. Senator elect. <laughs> Benta, you were following that race. Any surprises for you? Not really. Kind of like you said, the polls ended up being pretty accurate. And we saw through the summer and fall that Hickenlooper had this comfortable lead. So. I didn't see anything surprising. I don't think either candidate made major missteps in the main part of the campaign. They stuck to their messages. And a lot of it was a referendum on the president. We heard that early on, and we even heard that on Election Day. Mm -hmm. You know, some people still weren't incredibly engaged in this race. And for a lot of people, it was about control of the U.S. Senate, which right now it looks like likely to remain in Republican control. We don't know that yet. Yeah, the Senate as a whole. Yes. But this... This was obviously a big win for Democrats to flip this seat, mm-hmm. but may not be as monumental if they don't have control of the chamber. Exactly. I think if you look at it, you know, there was only one other gain right now for them, and that was the seat in Arizona with uh, Mark Kelly, now senator-elect, replacing Martha McSally. I think for me, the, the surprise was there was no blue wave. I mean, there wasn't even really a blue ripple when you look at it sort of federally. And even in Colorado, the House numbers are still the same. Four Democrats are going to Congress. Three Republicans are going to Congress. That's right. Lauren Boebert held on to that former Scott Tipton seat. No big change there. It was definitely close, but it was it was a comfortable lead, I think, for her. And for me, I thought it showed like how entrenched sort of politics had gotten, you know, despite all this money that went in, Democrats raised a lot more money than Republicans, but all that money, nothing really changed. It's pretty wild to think that out of all these races that were being watched so closely, like you said, Hickenlooper is one of the only Democratic candidates to really move the needle. Yeah. Um, And I would also say that um, I talked with Assistant Professor Paul DeBell at Fort Lewis College, and he sort of specializes in political psychology. And, you know, yeah. And ideally, I was talking to him about the third congressional district race. But like we got to talking about sort of the mood of of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And he was talking to me about the role of anxiety and fear in this election this year. But I also think that anger is is really running high on both sides. And that's that's the ocean in many ways of of partisanship, of digging down. and so I think that, you know, you see this mixture of emotions, negative emotions, I would say, dominating this campaign. This was not a campaign for any side that was really focused on a lot of hope. So I wonder, when you talk about digging down, uh, does this Senate result mean that statewide that Colorado really has dug down as a Democratic state, a blue state? The fact that Democrats made so little progress elsewhere, but blew the doors out on this Senate race here in Colorado, what does that mean? 
I mean, I think the challenge always was, at least for Gardner, the numbers in Colorado favor. If you just wanted to be like data and, and math, the numbers favor Democrats right now. Um, just there are more registered Democrats mm-hmm. than there are Republicans. And it's hard statewide to overcome that. Like you can go overcome that in certain areas where the balance is more equal or where, where Republicans yeah. overwhelm. But... And I think that picture is far different than it was six years ago when Gardner first got elected. True. And I... I don't want to say it's too early to tell. I mean, certainly Colorado's looking really blue right now, but we'll have to see in two years, depending upon who the president is and which way those unaffiliated voters break. Right now, they're breaking towards Democrats. Does that continue? And we see that Trump is unpopular in Colorado. When you look at the final result, he mm-hmm. lost by a very sizable margin. Gardner did better than Trump. Yeah. But you know, you're never going to make up that big of a deficit. Yeah. Did the results match up for you guys? Did the results match up with what you were hearing on the ground from voters? I don't know. I I, I wasn't really asking voters what they thought would happen. Um, so I didn't. I w- it was more like, where are you coming from? What are the issues you care about? I think some of the people on the left and the progressives certainly were thinking it was going to be more of a blue wave and they could get mm. the Senate and there'd be this. They were hoping a full repudiation of Trump nationally that would really be a reset. And we're mm. not seeing that. But I also was reading that in national polls and a lot of national coverage. I mean, right before the election, people were saying Texas could really go blue. We didn't see that. So I think some of the voters I talked to were were thinking those things yeah. could really happen. Lindsey Graham may be ousted in South Carolina. Texas could go blue. They were getting very optimistic, but still, because of 2016, so many people on the left were very, very cautious. And they were right to do that because those visions of a Biden blue wave were not true. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting is that the polling for Colorado was among the most accurate in the nation. And I, I won't speculate on why that is, but it shows that you know politics have gotten relatively stable on a statewide level here. In terms of the results in the state legislature level, one area that I was focused on was Southern Arapahoe County, the suburban area that's among the most closely split in the whole state. And when I went down there, I was curious to hear basically whether voters were going to punish their Republican state representative and senator for uh, affiliation with Trump, essentially, or whether they were going to kind of consider them separately. And we heard from a lot of voters, including some older uh, split ticket voters who said, you know what, we just want to return to normalcy and we're going to take out the entire Republican ballot on the way down. And that actually did end up narrowly happening is that, you know, that's one of the only areas where Democrats made some progress. To add to that, though, in a different part of the state, it looks like a Republican state senator may win election in a district that's very blue. So those those voters did split that ticket and down ballot when we had so many ballot initiatives and so many other races that that would have happened. I, I, we expect it to happen. It's not called, but that will be fascinating. I, I will say when I was in, in the western and southern part of the state, I did hear, talk to a lot of voters, unaffiliated Republican Democrats, who all would also all tell me that, you know, they like to consider not the party, but like the person and the issue. Top of the ticket, they were mm-hmm. talking sort of all Republican or all Democrat. But when you drilled down further, like county commissioner level, state representative, state senator level, I think that's when they were more open to ticket splitting. Well, one thing we heard at the state level was this expectation and hope among Democrats that they could continue their blue wave, that they could see another blue wave, just like in 2018, when they made significant gains, flipped the Senate and really consolidated power. 
they thought they might keep rolling with that expansion. And instead, we saw that blue wave kind of lap up against its edges. Mostly things stayed stable. They didn't they didn't mm-hmm. lose anything, really. I think that's right. And there weren't a lot of areas where Democrats could have picked up a ton of seats this cycle. No, the only place that they really did that that we can see was that, again, that southern Arapahoe County suburbs where the demographics were getting friendlier to them anyway. And right. And they barely eked that out. Yeah. Moving on to one of the other big things that we were following this year were some of the ballot measures. And I'm just curious, Andy, you were following that. How did you see, like, did sort of Democratic, Republican politics play a part in here or was it really sort of... The issues, the issues, the issues. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure if it was exactly the issues or not, but we did see some really mixed results as usual in ballot initiatives. Such a great gauge of all the different moods and persuasions that voters tend to have here. Um, the, The best example that we have is that voters simultaneously approved this paid family leave program by a huge margin. And that's going to grant 12 weeks of leave to voters across the state. And it's going to be powered by a fee on income that's going to be equivalent to a lot of people, about 1% of their income every year will be paid into that. A fee, a.k.a. a tax? It's pretty close to a tax. Okay. (laughs) But on the other hand, they also, Colorado voters, by a broad margin, decided to cut their income taxes. So they just kind of rearranged the money. It's going to make next session and covering state policy and finances even more confusing, I feel like. (laughs) Or more exciting. Come on. (laughs) Okay, more exciting. And to me, it's part of this really interesting broader trend where, yeah, people don't seem to like statewide taxes. They cut their statewide income tax. They don't like that general tax, but they will occasionally go for something that's set aside for a specific purpose. Like They also approved Proposition EE, raising cigarette and uh, nicotine taxes because it was earmarked for education. Right. And and a lot of that money is going to fund eventually full day preschool. Yes. And that is one of the top policy priorities for Governor Jared Polis. And I think if if that hadn't passed statewide, that was going to be a pretty bruising political fight because, yes, I think most lawmakers are on board with that. But when money is tight for, for the governor to try to get that through, I think it would have been pretty contentious. Yeah. And, and it makes me curious, you know, that kind of thing has failed in the past education, funding, cigarette funding. I wonder what it was about this year. I'm going to guess, this is Mike. what I'm curious about. I'm guessing, would it be the pandemic? I mean, you see, like, the pandemic has shown how important education, keeping schools open are, having paid family leave, Mm -hmm. like, where people are home and dealing with childcare issues. And I thought maybe that was at play. True. I also think the vaping element helped. I mean, we have one of the highest or did have the highest teen vaping rate in the nation. And I think a lot of people were concerned about that. I also think that this pandemic hammered home for people that the state's finances are pretty limited. They heard a lot about these big government cuts. So maybe they wanted uh, to kind of shore things up. You know, the interesting thing that these ballot initiatives delivered for both sides is a hint at how to get things done in the future for Republicans who may not be in the majority for some time to come. They can still put limits on what Democrats can do by putting these tax cuts in front of voters or imposing new fiscal regulations that voters like through the ballot. Democrats, on the other hand, if they have something they want to get done, like paid family leave, which they couldn't get done for six years, they can put it in front of voters. And if they phrase it just the right way, it might get through. One of the other closely watched ballot measures in the state was the 22-week abortion ban. Uh, What did you guys think about that? So there was definitely national uh, takes on what it would have meant had this Mm past because Mm -hmm. Colorado is one of the only states where providers do offer abortions this late in pregnancy. So there are women that come from other parts of the U.S. to Colorado to get this done. 
Right. Well, and this is one of the things I was curious about because, you know, talking about sort of liberal politics and conservative politics, I also think this is an example or it shows the limits of conservative politics. Every time they try and put a ballot measure dealing with abortion mm-hmm. and restricting it, it fails pretty strongly. Maybe it feeds into the perception that Colorado is fiscally conservative, if anything, and not so culturally conservative. And not I, that it's much of conservative anything anymore. I thought it would be a lot closer. It's, you know, most other states have this type of restriction or something similar, and this is not a personhood amendment or, you know, it's it was much more narrowly focused. Yeah. And another big uh, amendment that you were following was the Gallagher repeal. Yes. One of the most confusing pieces of legislation to ever have to explain to voters in in my experience. Gallagher amendment, real briefly, is a limit on property taxes that when you combine it with other laws that were instituted later in the state's history, adds up to cuts to property taxes that can really hurt rural areas. This has gone to voters in the past, this attempt to repeal it, and previous attempt failed just miserably. Voters wide scale said, no, we kind of like that. We think that protects us. But this time, with the help of a lot of money from people like Kent Theory and Pat Stryker, the billionaires, and bipartisan support in the the state legislature, voters struck this from the Constitution. That's a rare thing. Constitutional change. And there was some controversy about the ballot language. And I think, you know, there's a difference when uh, a group tries to get something on the ballot, they go through a different process to get the language approved. And this went through the legislature. And so when it's referred from the legislature, lawmakers basically get to decide how they want to phrase it. And so they can phrase it in a way that's more favorable to the outcome they're hoping for. And the phrasing, yeah, instead of being like, shall this be moved and that be moved and this be removed, was very much more focused on like, shall firefighters continue to get paychecks in rural areas? You know, it wasn't that exactly, but it was really, it was written in a way that emphasized the impacts yeah. And, and no one's going to vote against firefighters in rural areas. Apparently not. <laughs> and, and I think that that points to one of the interesting things about this direct democracy thing is like, you know, if you look at the paid leave we were discussing as well, if the language is written in a favorable way, you can get voters to approve changes in their taxes that they wouldn't approve otherwise. So I'm curious about what you guys think about these election results. I know that they're not finalized yet, but I think we we know enough. What does it say about the future of the GOP in Colorado? I mean, not a huge blue wave, but the blue wave from 2018 is still here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just been fascinating kind of how there has been such a quick shift. Just six years ago, mm-hmm. Cory Gardner defeated a Democratic incumbent mm-hmm. for, you know, yes, it was a narrow victory, but he won that race. And then... A couple years ago, we had a split legislative control. Democrats held the House. Republicans held the state Senate. So we have always been fairly politically divided. Um, Have things changed drastically or uh, is Trump just extremely unpopular with with voters in the suburbs? You know, we do have newer people moving into the state that may be more progressive. So I I don't really have the answer on um, whether this is a permanent shift, but certainly I think some of the more divisive rhetoric we're seeing doesn't play well with voters here. And Republicans, a lot of Republicans I talk to are, are well aware of that. And um, But there are divisions within the party about the best path forward. Well, I'm thinking about it at both the statewide level, like uh, federal politics, Senate, president, and also at the legislative level. But to start with that first one, I'm curious whether a future breed of Republicans that if President Donald Trump were to lose this election, who comes up in 2024? Are they a different variety that could be more popular in Colorado? Or alternatively, could 
you know, evolution force a different type of statewide Republican to rise up from Colorado and set a new mold? Well, I mean, it's, it seems like the Colorado GOP doesn't really have a deep bench, at least statewide, mm. for someone who could run for office. So I'm curious, and I, you might not have an answer, what would be a successful Republican politician here? What, what are the qualities they need? Well, maybe we can look to what we're seeing in the statewide results so far where, you know, you've got a, a couple of state legislators who appear to be beating the odds. Like you've got Kevin Priola, who is running ahead of Trump by a number of percentage points um, in Adams County. So what is he? He's kind of more of a perceived as more of a centrist moderate. Well, he, he's not just perceived. You know, he definitely aligns with Democrats on a lot of issues. He's a Republican. But I don't really have a clear answer because Cory Gardner was really the shining star of the GOP. And mm. he was the type of candidate that, you know, being being pro-business, not having a contentious personality, you know, likable. Mm -hmm. So I think that they're going to have to grapple with that. I mean, they, you know, a couple years ago, I've been doing stories on the GOP in Colorado trying to broaden the tent and get more women into politics. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now we're going to be going into a legislative session in January where in the state Senate, Republicans will only have one woman in their caucus. Mm. So... There's a lot of ground to make up in, you know, in terms of recruiting a more diverse pool of candidates. Well, does this force a big discussion among the Republican caucus, the party, the state legislators about what they do going forward? Because, like, they may not have lost a lot of ground this year, but they didn't have a lot of ground to lose. So at what point are they going to orient around a new direction? Republicans didn't lose as much ground in the legislature as they could have. Mm -hmm. If they keep a couple of seats that they could have lost, they will have a few moderate senators yes. still in the legislature. Mm -hmm. But what we're seeing in the House, there aren't as many moderate members. There are some for sure. But two years ago, a lot of those seats went to Democrats. So then it, it does make it more divided. You talk about Republicans opening the tent. At least one of the things I've been seeing on the federal level, the House Republicans are really happy because they've been able to increase the number of women mm -hmm. in the caucus. Including like, in Colorado, right? Including, yes, including Lauren Boebert. <laughs> I'm curious about what you guys think. You know, if a lot of what we're seeing in 2020 and 2018 was a reaction to Trump in, you know, moving forward, if there are liberal policies that the electorate doesn't like, will we see a reaction against Democrats? It's fully possible. I mean, we, we've seen that voters here, for example, are, are sensitive around tax issues and, and like to make themselves known on that and don't always behave in uniform ways. Yeah, and it's happened in the past. I mean, we have a different electorate now, but Democrats had uh, control of the legislature and the governor's office and passed strict gun laws. Two lawmakers were recalled, and then Republicans picked up a legislative chamber the next election. And that was so. just a few years ago. I mean, my thought is just like we've seen massive reorientations throughout U.S. history of parties and regions, and it's totally not impossible. Although, I don't know. Maybe we do become more of like a, just a permanent blue state. But I, I think that I would not ever rule out major political change in an area that seems stable. I agree with Andy. No, I'm not going to say anything. That was perfect. <laughs> That's my yes. extremely hot take is things will change. Not rule anything out. That's I think that's uh, key. Yes. I think that could be our motto. Purplish. We don't rule anything out. <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about something we always like to talk about. You know, that time where you go, wait, What? what? I know you guys have some. Well, I've got, I think I caused a wait what moment for somebody else because um, on election day, I ended up with this like freak hand injury where 
like my finger stopped working, like my posting finger, so I couldn't like post tweets as, as I'd like to. And it turned out to be kind of serious. And like I, I had to go to um, you know Kaiser Permanente on on Wednesday, and the nurse practitioner had to do kind of a, a painful thing to me, which I won't go into detail. It's nasty to imagine. <laughs> but Carol t- told me to distract myself by talking about something, and I started telling. So as she's like going to town on my hand, I started telling her about the Gallagher Amendment. I'm like, oh gosh! <laughs> yeah, repeal means that. Property tax assessment rates will be a lot out raised, <laughs> but it, it worked. It was so boring that I distracted myself. But did she learn something? Did Carol learn something? And did it change her vote on the Gallagher repeal? No, because it didn't. I think she probably voted against it, and she, and she started pushing back. She said, "Wow, all those people moved from California. Why did they move to here? And aren't they just going to cause the same problems where they came from?" And I was like, "Possibly." <laughs> <laughs> All right, but we're going to have a special Wait What guest come on right now. Our editor, Megan Verlee. Yes. Because she she did a wait, posted a Wait What in our little uh, in our little group chat. Oh, yes. That we were all like, wait, what? <laughs> so this Wait What uh, was actually a tweet from Peg Pearl in Arapahoe County. I think we had uh, some tape from her in our last episode. She's an election official there. Mm-hmm. And she posted a picture of a map of the U.S. with a bunch of states colored in in pink and explained that these were states whose ballots had been dropped off in Arapahoe County drop boxes <laughs> and that the clerk in Arapahoe was dropping into to FedEx envelopes and sending to the correct election officials in other states to process. And I just loved that because in an election that has been all about like making it harder for people to vote or like all the votes that aren't going to get counted and all this stuff. And here in Colorado, we have an election office that's like, oh, you gave us a ballot from Minnesota? Well, we're going to get that where it's supposed to be in Minnesota. (laughs) I mean, one thing I'm curious about, are these people like they live in Colorado, but they're still getting their ballot from California? Or do they just have their ballot with them? And hey, I'll just put it in this Dropbox. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's kids who go to college in other states and registered there, but then are home now on distance learning. Like, that that is actually a great question. Is like, why are there, I mean, this map has like 25 states colored in on it. Right, and it's not exactly like ski country that it's happening in or some tourist spot. It's Arapahoe County. Yeah. No offense. Well, Definite wait what there. No, but if you're the person getting it, like if you're the person in Arapahoe County and you see this and you're like, wait, what? I've got a ballot from Texas? Oh, wait. What? A ballot from, oh, okay, like Washington State? Well, it's you just, know what? Yeah. It's, it's a really good symbol of how elections get run in this country where I think like voters have some expectation that things are going to be like that. It's some national system. But no, it's like 50 different, radically different systems. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's the kind one... of 64 different systems in Colorado. They're each locally run at the county level. Yes. I think that's one thing as we've had so much national discussion on mail voting and the pandemic. Mm-hmm. People have started to realize that they what a local process it is. I think we were just talking earlier. You know what's going on with Pennsylvania and their vote counting. Well, mm-hmm. that's you know they have their own specific state laws. So. Well, I, I'm dying to know if this opens up an opportunity. You know, people's frustration with how long the vote count is taking and people's experience with mail voting. Does this open up an opportunity for more of a Colorado-style system to spread? We're like, you know, we were like, check mark, we're done, 10 p.m. Well, I will say I was talking to um, Representative Jason Crow on election night, so talking about his priorities, mm-hmm. and he'd mentioned sort of voting and how Colorado should and could be a model for other states. I mean, you know, we talked about Pennsylvania. Like, one of the rules was Pennsylvania couldn't actually start counting their mail ballots until 
election day, which is part of the reason why this vote is taking so long or this count is taking so Mm -hmm. long. Whereas in Colorado, they're allowed to start earlier. I mean, they can't input it in, but they get everything ready and done. Right. They're processing the ballots and verifying the signatures and doing everything they can that they just need to tabulate it. Yeah. Well, Amber McMarnold's the former elections director in Denver, just saw her on MSNBC last night spreading the gospel of vote by mail. And I think I think it has been an opportunity and we may see people look to Colorado after this. Yeah, I know that state lawmakers were advocating for Colorado's model as soon as this pandemic really started earlier Mm -hmm. in the spring. I was talking to people about how you really needed to prepare for mail in voting if that was going to happen. I will say, though, I've lived in countries where you can actually vote on your cell phone. So I think my friends there are just like, why is it so difficult for you, all you Americans? Alrighty. I think this is it for this week's episode of Purplish. Um, Yes, I know. We all survived election day week, or hopefully it doesn't become election month. (laughs) Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Benta Berkland. And I'm at Andy K-N-N-Y. And I'm at Caitlin Kim. Thank you for listening to Purplish from CPR News. And stay subscribed so you'll know when we're next in your feeds. Mm